Good morning, church family. You know, as always, uh, I am truly grateful for the honor and privilege of sharing God's word with God's people through the power of his spirit. It's a, it really is a blessing to be able to do this. If you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Um, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of that chapter. And meanwhile, if the kids want to find the nine hidden bingo pictures in this slide, um, I'd like to quickly remind us all uh, of where Paul and Barnabas have just come from, okay? In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas started out in Antioch, and then they moved across to the island of Cyprus, and they just kept preaching the gospel across the island until they, they ended up going back to the mainland, and then they went to Antioch and Pisidia, which is way up north and a little bit west of Antioch proper, and uh, we got to read a very powerful sermon that Paul preached there, and uh, it, it was geared toward an understanding of the history of God's people, we broke it up into, into a couple of different weeks, and then the, res, the response was the next week, basically. Um, and then it centered on, on Jesus Christ as the crucified and resurrected Messiah, which is what everything should center on. Uh, and there was a great response to the message there, and there, was, there were Jews and Gentiles both who were very excited to receive the message of Christ, but there were also a large number of the Jewish religious leaders who hated that Jesus was being preached as the Messiah. And so they, they slandered Paul and Barnabas and they tried to shout them down. Uh, by the way, if you've ever tried to speak truth in a public forum, uh, even online, you've probably dealt with some sort of similar situation where people try to shout you down because some people respond to truth with joy and some people respond to it with hatred. It's been that way for millennia. Uh, last week we saw that Paul and Barnabas chose to leave the city uh, for the time being because they had been vilified by the religious leaders in that city. And so when they were told, um, when, they, when they told those leaders that they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, I don't know if you remember that, but they told them, since you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, and from now on they said we'd be going to the Gentiles, then the religious leaders there forcibly ejected them from the town. Like they just gave them the boot. They kicked them out. And so it says that they shook the dust off their feet and they left there, um, not to return for a while. They did come back later on both of the, of the missionary journeys that came later. But um, for a while, they, they didn't come back. But, but the gospel was already spreading in that town. The good news was already going like wildfire. There were people who had received the message there and they had taken it to heart. And by the way, does anybody remember the title of last week's message? Ah, yes, you remember. Okay. It, it, the example of Paul and Barnabas showed us that it is okay to leave a situation where people are refusing to listen. But in today's passage, we see that there is also a time to stick around or to, to stand firm, as the title says. So if you would please uh, just follow along with me as I read through verses 1 through 7, and we'll go back over them in some more detail. Uh, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. 
and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Will you bow with me? Lord, we ask in Jesus' name for each person here that we will receive the word that is planted. Break up our stony hearts. Make us good soil. We pray, Father, for uh, just a, a great, deep understanding of your goodness, and your mercy, but also of your holiness and justice. And may we learn about ourselves as well as learn about you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a lot in this passage to sift, um, but I, I felt led to kind of split it up into how it can apply to the gospel and to us. And, and I know it says we up there, but that's not grammatically correct. So, um, But what does this passage say about the good news, okay? And then how do we connect that to our understanding of ourselves and our faith? Now, briefly, a reminder, okay? The gospel, the content of the gospel is the message of who Jesus is and what God did and does through him. Jesus is the Son of God and one with the Father. He is the Christ he died on the cross for our sins to spare us from the wrath of the Father that we, we earned, that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he claimed to be. In the New Testament, the gospel is presented alongside a message of repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, having said all that, let's take this text. We'll break it down a little bit. It says, Now at Iconium, they, that, that's Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now you got to appreciate, I don't know if we use this word in our culture, but the, the chutzpah that these guys have. You know, to be able to go, uh, let's just go right into the synagogue where everybody is going to be freaked out by what we say and they might hate us just a little bit. They went into, uh, it'd be like if we were to walk into another church and to step up on the pulpit and begin to speak. It was almost that kind of a, of a shocking thing that they would do. Um, anyway, th this was an interesting sentence to me because in English it reads like there was something about how the gospel was preached that convinced people to believe. It says in English, it says because they spoke in such a way. And um, most of y'all probably know, I don't believe that it is something about the speaker or something about the method of preaching that changes hearts and minds. Okay, I believe that it is the content of the message, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit that changes hearts and minds. Uh, just putting this out there, though, with, with any theological perspective, y'all, I'm open to, to changing my mind if the Scripture proves me wrong. All right, so I researched the Greek a little bit, and I still haven't been able to nail down whether Luke is attributing the response to Paul and Barnabas' skill as, as proclaimers of the gospel or what? Um, as far as I can tell, it, it's, it could go either way. It's kind of ambiguous. So here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cautiously say about that. God can use whatever he chooses to bring a person to Christ. Okay. Now we know from the scripture that we read earlier that the way that God typically chooses, and, and we, we could probably say always chooses in some extent, is that he brings the word. Now we've seen in places like Iran, he has brought the word through dreams to people who hear about the gospel from a dream about Jesus Christ, even though they'd never heard his name. And then God sends them to someone who will give them a, a fuller perspective. It's amazing stuff that God does. But if a person if a person's very good at preaching, then God, he might use their capability, which is what he gave them anyway, uh, to draw a lot of people to him. Or he might allow those words 
to fall on hard soil and get snatched away by the evil one. And we saw both examples in Acts 13, right? I mean, likewise, a, a person might have a terrible speech impediment and, and be horrified at even the idea of public speaking, but God might raise them up to set an entire nation free. Like who? Moses. See, the fact is, once again, God is sovereign over salvation. And he is sovereign over the hearts and minds of people as well as the method by which we hear the word. So I want us to focus then on the latter part of this sentence, okay? By mentioning both the Jews and the Greeks, I think that Luke is reinforcing the fact that the gospel is for anyone who will receive it. The gospel is for anyone who will receive it. Now, this is why some of this is this is the point at which I guess some of my uh, more Armenian brothers might pump their fist a little bit, um, you know, because as Jesus said, "Whosoever believeth in Him," right? But you also notice there's a little asterisk there, okay? And we'll get to that. Uh, but first, let's remember it was a fairly new idea, okay, that Christianity could include more than just the Jews, because it was only in Acts chapter 11 that the church was told by Peter. You remember the story from his experience in Acts chapter 10? He was told that a group of Gentiles had been saved, okay? That's what Peter told the church, and, and, and the time that we read about a disciple actually saying, we're going to go to the Gentiles, that was just a few verses ago. That was at the end of chapter 13. But now again, the gospel has been unleashed for people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation to receive. I want to come back to this asterisk for a minute. Remember last week, we spent a few moments on, on the, the odd little phrase, that all those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. And I think it's fair to say that the gospel is for anyone who will receive it, and that number consists of all those who are appointed unto eternal life. In other words, those whom the Bible refers to as the elect will receive the gospel. But there are others who are not included in that group who will not believe the gospel. They will, in fact, choose not to. And as we will see today, they are sometimes not satisfied with simply rejecting it. Okay, verse 2 reads, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You see, it wasn't enough for them to just say, Well, let's just agree to disagree, right? They intentionally interfered with Paul and Barnabas, trying to turn other people away from the truth, just like Elymas the sorcerer. You remember that story? That was in the last chapter. He tried to do with Sergius Paulus. He tried to blind his eyes. And then what did Paul do? <laughs> or what did God do through Paul? He blinded Elymas' eyes. So the gospel, listen, the gospel is wide open to all who will receive it, but some will actively oppose it. And this is a sad truth about the world that we live in today, friends, just as it was back then. There are many people who reject the gospel for various and sundry reasons. We can't always know why. Some view the gospel as too good to be true because they're legalists at heart and they want to earn God's favor. And others view it as, as too exclusionary because Jesus insisted that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And still others reject the idea of repentant faith, and they think that just agreeing with some kind of mental checklist is all that God requires of his people. Listen, there are always going to be those people. Until Jesus comes back, there will always be those whom Paul refers to in Philippians 3 as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
He says their end is destruction. He says that they're, they're, they're enslaved to their lusts. They glorify in shameful things. They're not looking toward God. They're only looking at earthly things. And so we should expect this. We should expect that there will be enemies of the gospel whenever we preach it. Whenever we try to live according to its dictates, there will be people who don't like it. And when you love people enough to tell them that Jesus is the only way to heaven, they're going to say you're bigoted against other faiths. And when you, when you are courageous enough to speak truth and love about certain sins, they'll call it hate. And if you insist that we can only receive salvation as a free gift of God, by grace through faith, but that that, that leads to obedience, legalists will say you're a heretic and so-called carnal Christians will say that you're relying on works. In other words, there will always be people who don't think it's sufficient to reject the gospel for themselves. They want to poison the well for everybody else. How do we handle that? I think it's interesting in this case, Paul and Barnabas didn't do what they had done in the last town. Luke writes, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, now this, this too, this is an interesting sentence to me because of how it's phrased. Because again, in the English it says, so they remained a long time which doesn't quite match up to the end of the previous verse, right? Which says that the the Jewish unbelievers were poisoning the minds of the the brothers. And so perhaps a a better translation of the Greek word at the beginning of the sentence would be even so, just for clarity's sake. Anyway, this verse brings up a point which we should really consider because it has a very solid application to our own lives, okay? Notice the apostles had people opposing them strongly, but they decided that God was calling them to stick around, and so they did speaking boldly, boldly. And friends, we too can live boldly, quorum contrarius. That's Latin for before the face of opposition. We can stand up to those who reject Christ. We can stand up to those who mistreat us because we're on the right side. So there's, there's honor in being mocked and being maligned and being hated as a, as a result of clinging to Christ and what is right and true. And that, that doesn't mean that we go around you know, being condescending or reacting towards people with the same vitriol that they might direct at us. Remember, the passage we looked at last week from 1 Peter says, always, I like that word, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have. How? He says, with gentleness and respect. Because then they'll be ashamed for mistreating us, right? It's like that proverb. It's quoted later in Romans 12. Uh, It's the whole, be kind to your enemy because doing so will cook his noodle. You know, uh, that's a paraphrase, but you know what I'm saying. Um, But it brings glory to God when we refuse to back down for the truth of his word. When we know the truth of his word and we refuse to step back from that, it honors him. It gives him glory. And from this passage also, Uh, We see that God testifies to his own truth. Now, he he does this in many ways. uh, But in the context of Acts 14, we see that he gave them the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders. That's kind of cool. You know, I I think we still get to see some of that today, but but it's, it's not as common today, perhaps. However, I think it's true that in, in every era of the Christian faith, I think God empowers his people to be able to spread the truth. He always empowers us. 
We may not receive the ability like, like Peter had. Apparently, like his shadow could heal people, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, right? But even so, we receive God's power through other ways, right? As he testifies to his truth through us, it may be that he gives us the right words in certain circumstances, or, or he might provide the strength to get through a trial without dishonoring him. Or maybe he'll even, he'll, he'll, he'll give us the ability to show kindness to someone who has only been hateful toward us. The Lord can use circumstances like these just as visibly, just as powerfully as a miraculous sign. Because listen, the work, this, this is, take this to the bank, the work of the Holy Spirit in a man is a miracle. It is. A person who used to need a wheelchair that is now walking, yes, that is a, a powerful testimony to God's goodness and God's power. But seeing a person who used to live wickedly, that has been transformed, is every bit as much a sign of the Lord at work. Every bit. Anyway, let's, let's keep reading. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, the, the, uh, the apostles, incidentally, were also Jews, okay, as well as many of the believers. And I bring this up because uh, it seems to me like anti-Semitism is experiencing a resurgence in our culture. And I want to make sure people don't mishear Scripture. The Bible is not condemning all Jews here, okay? I just I want to make sure that we understand this. It's not making them all out to be the bad guys. There are people on both sides, Okay? So it's, it's just when Luke uses the title, the Jews, he's talking about their religious leaders that were antagonistic toward Christianity, not all of them as a whole, okay? Uh, I just wanted to clarify that, but here, here's something else we can learn about the gospel from this passage. It divides by necessity. I'm going to say that again. The gospel divides by necessity. Now, I know that some people are sensitive talking about division. You know, I mean, and, and it's, it's true that a friend of mine once reminded me that the gospel is not only radically exclusive, it's also radically inclusive, right? Because God accepts anyone who comes to him in faith. But likewise, the gospel is also an incredibly unifying force for anyone who receives it. But I want to make sure we understand this, okay? Whether I speak the same language or share the same culture you know, or skin color as another person. If they belong to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, they are my brother or sister. And yours too, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus. But the Bible is very clear that the gospel is not only a unifying force, it is also a very divisive force because it draws a stark line in the sand. You're either on one side or the other. You ever seen that Bugs Bunny cartoon where he keeps drawing a line in the sand and telling Yosemite Sam not to cross it, and every time he draws a line, then Sam steps over it, and then he draws another line, and Sam steps over it, and then he draws another line? It's like politicians, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's, that's not how the gospel works. The line is drawn one time, and it does not move. When you hear the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, you either believe it and it changes your life, or you don't. 
And the more you hear that message, one of two things is happening, okay? God is either breaking up the soil of your heart and he's preparing you to receive that message or your heart is becoming even harder. I don't think there's a middle ground. I don't think there's a middle ground. In Isaiah, we we read that the word of the Lord does not return to him void, right? It always accomplishes that for which it is sent. The message of God's Son is instrumental in separating the children of God from the children of the devil. Read John 8, if you don't believe me about that. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. But a sword, he goes on to say, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And when he was pressed by the Pharisees, Jesus explained how faith in his message was that line in the sand. He said, you come down on one side or the other. You remember when the Pharisees asked him if he would tell them plainly he was the Messiah? This was his answer. He said, I told you and you don't believe. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Oh, and by the way, he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, y'all, there is a stark delineation between those who believe on Jesus and those who don't. between those who have eternal life and those who have eternal condemnation. And it hinges on the message of who Jesus is and what God has done. So, continuing on, uh, we we see that the boldness of the apostles is really starting to get on the religious leaders' nerves. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, this is talking about Paul and Barnabas for sure, but possibly other prominent Christians, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. I, I want to pause there. Um, I think there's an application in this passage for us. It, it's true that nearly all of the apostles were eventually murdered for their faith. And many Christians throughout history have willingly gone to their death for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of, of the message of the gospel. But it is also true that none of them got their ticket punched until God was through with them in this life. I think it's also true that they usually avoided what appeared to be certain death when they had that option. And I think it's fair to say we can live to fight another day as well, just like they did, both, both in the figurative sense and a literal one if it comes to that. Now, I want you to understand, that does not mean that you ever, ever deny Christ, ever. If a person walked in that door right now and stuck a gun in my face and said, you either deny Christ or you're going to go meet him, I will meet him. I will tell you that right now. And it is not okay for anybody to say, "Uh, I deny. You can't do that. You cannot do that. But we're talking about when you're in a circumstance where you have the option to stay in a situation and be stoned to death or go somewhere else and live to fight another day. I do believe that the Bible teaches that's okay, right here. And in several other places, the book of Acts, we're going to get there in just a minute. There's an old saying that says, uh, we need to be careful in choosing which hill to die on. Have you heard that that saying? Okay. Uh, Acknowledging or denying Christ, that's a hill to die on. All right? 
And it, it, what, what do you say? It means that there are times where, where it's not worth the hassle to take a stand on an issue because it's not as important as a stand that you may have to take later. All right? And as a general rule, I, I think it's a good idea for us to determine uh, which battles have the most important outcomes in our lives and then focus our energy on those. Otherwise, we spread ourselves too thin, right? We burn out too soon. And like Kenny Rogers says, <laughs> no end to walk away, no end to what? No end to run. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. I mean, they've done everything they knew to do, and, and now they were either going to, to go preach the gospel someplace else, or they were going to die for preaching it in Iconium, and so they fled, and that's okay. And you know, it, it, twice in Acts chapter 9, we see people trying to kill Paul, and his followers helped him escape. And in Acts chapter 12, we see Peter, he's released by, by an angel from prison, you remember the story, and then he goes somewhere else. Why? To avoid capture again, right? Now, Please do not confuse or conflate living to fight another day with cowardice. Or vice versa, either way, okay? Just, just being either too lazy or too afraid to stand up for God, that is not commendable. That's not what we're talking about here, all right? We need to have discernment and we need to properly prioritize when it comes to what things we need to address. When to walk away, when to stand firm in the face of adversity. And this kind of discernment or, or this wisdom comes from the Lord. Remember, James 1, his word says, he will give wisdom freely to anybody who asks. So if you're having trouble deciding whether to engage or even re-engage, you know, certain people, certain situations, or whether to avoid it at all costs, you should pray and be open to the Holy Spirit's leading, whatever that is, okay? Anyway, we're going to finish the sentence. The apostles fled to other cities to the surrounding country where they retired and went to the beach to collect seashells. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. No, instead Luke writes, and there they continue to preach the gospel. I remember um, John Piper a few years back. I know not everybody loves John Piper, but I do. And he said something really awesome. He, he, he was reading an article about a, a couple who had become financially independent, were extremely wealthy, and at a fairly young age for retirement, they retired, and he said, and they went to the beach and collected shells. And he said, don't let that be you. Don't waste your life. You know, retirement is a fairly new concept. You know where my retirement is? I'll tell you right now. It's going to be up there. Don't be that guy that collects shells and, and lets that be his legacy. They didn't rest on their laurels. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't go get a houseboat and float on the Red Sea. You know, they, they didn't set up lawn chairs on a hilltop and just wait for the second coming. No, they kept on doing the mission that Christ had commanded them to do. And today, if you're retired, I hope that you're still preaching the gospel with your words and with your life. Looking around this room, I think, yeah, I can say most of you are. <clears throat> Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Don't rest on your laurels. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Can you imagine how awful it would have been if Jesus' disciples had just thought, you know, you know what, it's really not worth all this hassle. I mean, Jesus already told me I've got a mansion in heaven, so, so what, what do I need to do this for? I don't need to stick around, and, and, and I don't need all this frustration. I'm going to let these people go do their own thing. You know, I'm going I'm to let that's their business. 
I'm going to cut all the toxic people out of my life. You know, come on. Can you imagine? None of us would be here today. None of us would be here today. No, they, they kept preaching the gospel wherever they went. Listen, friends, it's okay if we think the Lord is giving us permission to retreat and live to fight another day. That's fine, but we must keep fighting. We have to keep going. As long as you're on this side of the grass, as long as you're breathing, your duty and your obligation is to keep fighting. You know, God doesn't just release us from the Great Commission because we reach a certain age or because we've been burned by a church or because we finally maybe hit the sweet spot in life. You know, Paul told his protege, and this was years later, he said to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. And just, just months before he was beheaded, Paul said of himself, that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished the race, that he had kept the faith, and he knew that there was in store for him a crown of righteousness that had been prepared. We can't give up, church. We can't give up. Now listen, uh, we're going to take just a little more time here to flesh this out. Um, we must keep fighting. Okay, we can accept that, but what in the world does that mean, Right? You know, are you, are you ready to lace on the gloves or to go home and lock and load? What are we talking about here, you know? What are we talking about? Getting ready to fight. Scripture gives us some clues about this battle that we find ourselves in. And, and I want to take just a few minutes here to talk about this so that we can be encouraged to stand firm and to stay in the fight, even if we get knocked down or even if we have to retreat sometimes. Uh, first of all, a really important question to know the answer to, okay, is who is the true enemy? And if, if we are treating other Christians as the enemy, then listen, we could not be in a more dangerous position in this life. Other Christians are not your enemy. Other Christians are our brothers and sisters. We may not see eye to eye on everything, but we need to see eye to eye on Jesus. Other believers, true believers, are not our enemy. But what about the world? You know, we think, well, what about evil people? Like, I almost want to call him Rasputin, like Putin. What about evil people, wicked folks like that? Are they the enemy? Well, maybe to an extent. But we can't forget, they are under the thrall of a much greater enemy. Even our own bodies and minds sometimes rebel against our desire to serve the Lord, right? But that's, that's not our ultimate foe. In Ephesians 6, Paul wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So to, to put it very simply, the true enemy is the devil. And when we realize that, we end, up, we end up able to be a whole lot more patient with ourselves and with other people. And you might, you know, well, you can't exactly shoot the devil, right? Can't exactly, you know, I mean, I know Martin Luther believes he threw an inkwell at Old Scratch one day. I think that's kind of a funny story, but and maybe he did. But there is no earthly weapon that we have that can hurt the devil, so how do we fight? And there's a magnificent section of Ephesians 6, if we'd have kept going, it actually comes right after that verse I read uh, for the previous point, but it's really long, so I'm not going to do that today. But it talks about some of the specific weapons that we have as Christians, Okay, and they're amazing stuff. Probably going to do a sermon on that one of these days. But for now, let's just let's refer to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. 
Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war, he says, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Divine power, not earthly power. We fight against the devil in the spirit of the Lord. We don't have intrinsic power to fight spiritual battles. You know, Dennis alluded to that earlier. It's not something that we are capable of in our flesh. And so we have to seek the Spirit of God to help us. And He does. And He will. Okay, then. If the battle is spiritual and the enemy is the devil, then how do we know if we're winning? Right? What, what is our victory? This, this is a great question, right? Because I, I think most of us... We probably have some kind of a metric that we generally rely on, you know, to see if we're successful in the things that we're trying to do, right? Maybe it's job performance or, or grades, you know, like, what do you bench, bro, or whatever. Um, but those, those are all visible markers, right? How do we know we're not underwater in our spiritual day-to-day -day fights? We're not going to the same place, but that's not a bad answer. I don't know where that came from. Fruit of the Spirit? Good. I love that you're guessing. I think it's awesome. The Apostle Paul says it in such a way that it gives hope, I think, to the most battle-wearied believer. He says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Say it with me. Our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And it's deeply tied to hope. And without faith, we don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Our faith is that victory. Now, it's not faith in general. You know, and it's not, it's not faith in faith. You know, oh, just believe. No, no. Faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his sheep and took it up again. And you can know that you are on the winning team if you have faith in Jesus. Now you might say, well, oh yeah? Okay, well, what if my faith is small? <laughs> right? What if I'm like the father with the demon-possessed son in Mark chapter 9 that cried out to Jesus, I do believe! Help my unbelief! Can I be sure that my little bitty faith is enough? I think you can. I think you can. Well, how do you know, Mark? Church, why are we certain? Why are we certain? It, because it's not the size of our faith that saves us. It is the size of the object of that faith. I've been bungee jumping, folks. And, and believe me, for a guy that doesn't do well with heights, it is utterly terrifying to jump off of a platform attached to a crane at night, which is when I did it, okay? But I believed that that bungee, that big thick bungee and all those clips and clamps would keep me safe despite how close I got to needing a diaper. Um, and, and I am here today because it supported me. Okay? Now listen, a, a person can be as confident as the day is long that a plain old you know, rubber band is going to support their weight. But that sucker's going to break. Or a 
as even a wild-eyed and terrified person can worry all day long about breaking a bungee cord, but if you step off that platform, guess what? You're going to survive, unless you have a heart attack, because it is the object of that faith that protects you, not the size of your faith. Jesus says, actually Paul said, excuse me, but Jesus said it through Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through what? Superior firepower? Sheer grit? No, the victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is why we're certain. He's our why. Jesus was good enough to be a perfect sacrifice accepted by God. Jesus is strong enough to perfect us in our weakness. Jesus is the one through whom we are more than conquerors, according to Romans 8. Fight the good fight, friends, by keeping faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to invite you today, if you've never done it before, to believe in the person and the message of Jesus Christ. And if you do today, he commands you, confess him as your Lord and be baptized according to his word. And if you've done that already, then keep fighting the good fight. And, and you know what, if, if maybe you're looking for a church home or you believe you found it, I invite you to join officially today. If you have any other reason to come forward, if you just need to receive prayer for something that, that is weighing on your heart, then take this opportunity. Um, just be encouraged to do so.